You're watching CNN. I'm Alison Kosick in New York. Any moment now, we are expecting to see the leaders of Sweden and Finland arriving at the White House. They're set to meet President Biden after submitting applications to join NATO. But first, U.S. stock futures are pointing to deeper losses a day after a major sell-off on Wall Street. Dow futures are down over 300 points at the moment. The index lost more than 1,100 points, or 3.6 percent yesterday. It's a biggest one-day decline since June of 2020. The S&P 500 dropped 4 percent. The Nasdaq skidded 4.7 percent. Investors are increasingly worried about rising inflation, a possible recession as well, after dire earnings reports from retail giants like Walmart and Target. European stocks are tracking the U.S.'s sell-off, with London's FTSE down as well. And in Asia, stocks mostly tumbled. The Hang Seng closed down over 2.5%. The Nikkei also fell almost 2%. I want to bring in Christine Romans, who's been following all the market action for us. Christine, uh, you know what? We had that market meltdown yesterday, watching these futures just fall even far, you know, even further. What can we expect to happen today? You know, it's an old Wall Street cliche that markets hate uncertainty, but it's true. And there's really a surplus of uncertainty. You saw inflation and supply chain drama in those earnings that you mentioned, and that really got investors skittish, uh, running for the exits really here out of risky assets. And that tone holding into today's U.S. session, it feels like we'll have to wait and see if maybe it attracts some buyers who look at some of those big moves yesterday and think this is a buying opportunity or whether it just feeds into the fear loop that we're having here. You haven't seen this, what they call in you know market parlance, uh, capitulation yet, but certainly you have seen some big moves. You know, the Dow down 5,300 points since its peak earlier this year. That's 14 percent. It's even worse for the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is uh, all the way back to October 2020 levels. For blue chip investors, that's what's most likely in your 401k or your retirement accounts. You've lost a year of gains, 14 months of gains here. So you can see how uh, just fearful people are. There are so many cross currents happening here at once, Allison. Um, You've got COVID lockdowns in China that are uh, threatening to snarl those supply chains. Bigger picture, you have supply chains that really need to be more resilient. So you're going to have to make some investments longer term, which is going to mean, you know, a more period of uncertainty. You've got oil prices and energy prices moving high. You've got a war, uh, Russia's war, right, with Ukraine that could be a real problem for food security and energy security. Any one of these storylines would be destabilizing. And you've got a half a dozen major, major uncertainties that will not be able to be fixed in just a day, but will take months, if not years, For example, the global energy playbook, uh, the map rather, that'll have to be redrawn because of Russia. That will take time. Yeah, all of these cross currents that you talk about aside, we have to remember that the stock market is not the economy. And and some you know people may be scratching their heads and saying, OK, my portfolio is down. I feel less wealthier today. But retail sales numbers are up. People are going on yeah. vacation. They're going out to eat. Is this going to turn into a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where everybody's talking about a recession coming and then it comes? Yeah, that's fear, fearful, right? When you get when you start to change the psychology of yeah. people. Look, when you talk to airlines, they're expecting 
just enormous demand. Uh, when you talk about the consumer experience, it's shifting from buying stuff and buying services again, which is a little more healthy uh, of a balance. Um, the consumer complains and grumbles about inflation, but the consumer keeps spending. I think one of the things in these earnings, retail earnings that caught so many people's attention is this mix of what people are buying. It, especially low-income Americans are shifting away from, um, you know, from kitchen gadgets and electronics and more toward just the basics. So you're starting to see that inflation biting for some uh, American families. I think what's interesting around the world is the inflation story. In some of these countries, in Norway, in Canada, uh, in most of Europe, they're paying much more for gasoline than they are in the United States. The U.S. taxpayer subsidizes the oil and gas industry tremendously in the U.S. So as a part of its disposable, disposable income, uh, gas is not as big a deal in the U.S. as it is um, around the world. But you're right that it feeds into the sentiment. And all this talk from some of these big banks about a recession is more likely, um, or, or the, the risk is rising for recession, it does have a dampening effect um, on consumer sentiment. I will say that we just saw some uh, jobless claims in the U.S. this morning that were a little bit disappointing, showing a rise there. You know, we have very low unemployment in the U.S. in particular. It's really been an engine of growth. There will be a lot of scrutiny on whether that starts to slow a little bit as the Fed ratchets up interest rates um, and, and the economy enters this new period here. All right, Christine Roman, thanks for all of that great context. You're welcome. President Biden is meeting the leaders of Finland and Sweden today after they both applied to join NATO. They're expected to speak later before Mr. Biden leaves on his first official trip to Asia. U.S. security correspondent Kylie Atwood is in New York and Nina Dos Santos is in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, hello to both of you. Nina, I'm going to start with you and, and ask you about Turkey because Turkey really seems to be the biggest hurdle uh, to Finland and Sweden joining the alliance. How does Turkey's pushback affect their bids for membership in NATO? Yeah, it's certainly an irritation, as you can see, also for big countries like the United States that are throwing their weight behind these two nations that, by the way, amply already qualify for the NATO criteria and spend heavily on their defense. Um, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, now today for a third time in less than a week, has reiterated this concept of having some concerns about Sweden and Finland that he once aired around the NATO table before he can sign on the dotted line. Otherwise, it appears as though he's threatening to veto their accession. By the way, you need a unanimous consensus of all 30 member states that are part of this big alliance before these two countries can join. Already one has agreed to do so. This is Estonia. The government has uh, agreed that they will be welcoming Sweden and Finland into the alliance. That coming just, as you said, uh, an hour or so before the U.S. President Joe Biden has this big meeting with the leaders of Sweden and also of Finland as well. What are Turkey's grievances? Well, large it has a lot to do with uh, their perception of Sweden or Finland's alleged support of groups that they deem to be Kurdish separatist terrorist organizations. Sweden has tried to rebuff that. There's also issues of arms embargoes that have been imposed on Turkey and a thorny issue of Turkey being frozen out of a fighter jet program after it bought Russian uh, military defense systems. So these are the types of things that President Erdogan appears to be negotiating, playing tough on, because this is an opportunity he has now. Alison? 
Thanks so much, Nina. Kylie, let me ask you this. You know, Russia obviously not thrilled about uh, this application from Finland and Sweden to try to get into NATO either. Russia's uh, deputy foreign minister saying they are committing a grave mistake. So visuals matter in this. What kind of message do you think President Biden is trying to maybe send to Russia as he meets with the leaders of these countries? Yeah, well, it's notable that the president made time today to meet with these leaders before he's heading to Asia, right? It's it's very clear that the White House uh, wants to securely signal that they strongly support, in President Biden's words, uh, the addition of Finland and Sweden to NATO. Uh, And it's interesting, however, that as time goes on, as their applications are considered and put forth as they were uh, this week, this division within NATO is only growing more pronounced as President Erdogan is coming out and reiterating Turkey's opposition to these countries joining. And over the last few days, over the last few weeks, when you talk to U.S. officials about Turkey's opposition, they sort of try and say, you know, okay, we understand it, but we're going to get to yes. We are going to get uh, Turkey to agree here. But as more time goes on, as Turkey kind of uh, digs in its heels, if you will, uh, there Mm -hmm. is more pronounced division within NATO, which is the exact thing that NATO allies do not want at this moment. As this Ukraine war rages on, they really want a sense of unity portrayed. Uh, So it is a diplomatic challenge for the Secretary of State. He's here uh, this week. He met with uh, the Turkish foreign minister just yesterday on this topic. Kylie, I just want to interrupt for a second. And we're, we're going to live pictures now at the White House of President Biden meeting with the leader of Finland. there, taking uh, taking pictures, uh, both leaders, the leaders of Finland and Sweden just arriving now at the White House. You see the photo op there, uh, the red carpet laid out for them, uh, ready to have this meeting right before, as you said, uh, the president heading out on this uh, very important trip to Asia. T- talk us through, Kylie, maybe what kind of leverage Turkey has in these discussions um, before, um, you know, Turkey signs on the dotted line. Yeah, I think leverage is the key word here. And Turkey recognizes that first and foremost, uh, all countries in NATO need to agree to admit new members. So if Turkey says no, the answer ultimately is going to be no. So that is kind of the basic fact of the matter. And then when you look at their conversations, their frustrations over what they call uh, these Kurdish terrorist groups in Finland, in Sweden, they are trying to see what they can get in their favor if they're going to turn into a yes on this. And I I think Mm -hmm. it's interesting as we look at what they're saying publicly about what they want. Uh, We're also wondering what kind of conversations and requests they may be making quietly. For example, the United Mm. States and Turkey continue to be in conversations about uh, additional U.S. military equipment to Turkey. And so as those conversations are happening in parallel, are they at all involved in what Turkey is doing here, the leverage Mm -hmm. uh, that they are trying to seek in this situation? So it's really a a complicated moment. uh, And it's really unclear at this moment how exactly the United States and its allies are going to get Turkey uh, to change its mind with President Erdogan Mm -hmm. being very clear that right now it's a no for them. Okay, and as uh, we break away from this story, I want to take one last look at what's happening at the White House. Uh, President Biden taking a picture with the leaders of Finland and Sweden there at the White House live. Kylie Atwood, Nina Dos Santos, thanks so much for all of uh, your analysis on this. And as we were saying, markets are suffering in Asia. The Hang Seng closing down over two and a half percent. 
while Tencent, China's largest company listed in Hong Kong, saw its stock sink 7%. Meantime, authorities in Shanghai say businesses are gradually reopening as severe COVID lockdown restrictions ease. Let's go to Selena Wang. She joins us uh, from Beijing with the details. Selena. Selena, can you hear me? Allison, the key words here is that this is a very slow reopening process in Shanghai. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? This is a very slow reopening process in Shanghai. Very few companies and factories can actually abide by these strict COVID rules that allow them to reopen because these factories and companies have to follow a closed loop policy, meaning that their employees have to live, sleep and work within the company grounds. That takes a lot of resources. It's even hard for large companies to have enough resources to do that. So you can imagine how tough this is for those small and medium sized businesses. But this slight relaxing comes as Shanghai is starting to open some supermarkets and pharmacies. Authorities have announced a phased reopening approach to return to normalcy by mid-June. For several consecutive days now, Shanghai has not announced any new COVID cases outside of these quarantine centers. But Allison, people in Shanghai, they are skeptical about these announcements from the government. Many have lost trust in local authorities because back when Shanghai announced the citywide lockdown in March, authorities said it was only going to last for four days. Well, now it's been nearly two months and many people are still under strict lockdown. There's still a flood of complaints on Chinese social media, many of which have been censored of people complaining that they have not been let out of their homes while state media is promoting these images that life in Shanghai has returned to normal. In fact, just earlier today, I interviewed a couple in Shanghai. They've been stuck in their home for two months. They haven't been let outside even once that entire time. And meanwhile, across China, you still are seeing these partial or full lockdowns in dozens of cities here in Beijing. Allison, authorities are not calling it a citywide lockdown, but in large swaths of the city, it is a de facto lockdown. I'm technically allowed outside of this hotel, but really nowhere for me to go, Allison. All right, Selena Wang, uh, live from Beijing. Thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. North Korea has reported nearly two million cases of an unspecified fever a week after acknowledging a COVID outbreak for the first time. South Korea says Pyongyang sent three cargo planes to China this week, and according to Reuters, they returned with medical supplies. The health crisis comes as North Korea appears to be planning another missile test. The U.S. says it could happen during or before President Biden's trip to Asia and that it is preparing for all contingencies. CNN's Will Ripley joins us from Taipei with more. Uh, Will, what more are you learning about this? Well, it might on the surface be a little bit surprising that North Korea, which is dealing with a potentially catastrophic COVID-19 outbreak because they don't have uh, enough medical equipment. They don't have they don't have even basic medicines. They don't have they don't have facilities to handle the influx of patients who might be malnourished, like a huge percentage of the North Korean population, making them susceptible to severe cases. But anyway, we're talking about North Korea still going ahead with potential plans for a highly provocative launch or nuclear test while President Biden's in the region. And I guess, you know, the two departments are not are not connected. Uh, but North Korea, by announcing their COVID-19 outbreak uh, and then also now potentially planning a missile test, according to the United States uh, intelligence agencies, it shows that they're really intent uh, on inserting themselves into the conversation. When President Biden's here in the region, they want 
him to talk about North Korea. They want to know where he stands on North Korea. He's been very hands-off uh, thus far, much like um, President Obama when, he, when Biden was vice president. And that strategic patience approach led, led to a number of nuclear tests and missile launches. Um, North Koreans want something more unconventional, like what the former U.S. President Donald Trump did. They want President Biden to write a letter. They want a, per, you know, they want a connection at the top level uh, to start negotiations or restart negotiations. But of course, the North Koreans have played this game for, for decades. You know, they want something in advance just for, to reward them for sitting down and talking. Uh, the United States is saying they'll talk with no preconditions. North Korean says that's not good enough. So I think we can, ex- it's safe to say we can expect some major provocations to come. A nuclear test at some point, maybe not necessarily when President Biden's in the region. A missile launch might be more likely, a lot of analysts are saying. And President Biden leaving on his trip to Asia this morning. Will Ripley in Taipei. Thanks so much. The CDC says it's tracking multiple recent clusters of monkeypox in several countries, including Portugal, Spain and the United Kingdom. And now the U.S. is investigating its first case this year of the virus. Monkeypox is similar to the now eradicated smallpox. It spreads through contact with body fluids, including in a close setting. The droplets present in someone's breath. Stay with First Move straight ahead. War crimes in Ukraine were live in Kyiv as a Russian soldier returns to court. Then, how the war is fueling a global food crisis. We have a special report and I'll speak with the CEO of Impossible Foods. The trial of a Russian soldier accused of committing a war crime in Ukraine is ongoing today. Vadim Shishimarin already pleaded guilty to killing an unarmed civilian on the fourth day of Russia's war. Officials had to move the trial to a larger courtroom in Kyiv because of huge media interest. Our Melissa Bell is outside the courthouse and she joins us live. Melissa, what's been going on in court today? Well, this was uh, the first big day of the trial. It had begun yesterday, was postponed. And what we've been seeing uh, has really been very emotional inside that courthouse. I'm just outside it now. The session's just been adjourned. Uh, But what has been going on has been uh, quite extraordinary. As you mentioned, the facts of the case, that 20-year-old Vadim Shishimarin, who's accused of killing that unarmed civilian. Now, Oleksandr Shelipova was that civilian. He was a 62-year-old Ukrainian man who'd been on his bicycle uh, in a village uh, not terribly far from the Russian border in Sumy region in the north, uh, uh, northeast of Ukraine. Uh, he'd been on his bicycle uh, and he was shot uh, by, allegedly by Vadim Shishimarin, who's now pled guilty uh, to uh, that charge. In the court today, Vadim Shishimarin was questioned by that man's widow. Have a listen. Can you please tell me, what did you feel when you killed my husband? Shame. Do you repent? Yes, I acknowledge my fault. I understand that you will not be able to forgive me, but I am sorry. Now, what emerged after that extraordinary moment, uh, Alison, was more. It, they didn't, we didn't simply hear today from Vadim Shishimarin. We heard from a second Russian prisoner of war, one of the soldiers who'd been traveling with him. To remind you of the bare facts of the case, 
his tank unit had been uh, traveling from the Russian border. It hit a mine. He and his men then fled in a stolen vehicle and found themselves in this village shooting uh, that civilian in order that they not be reported. In that car was another Russian soldier who also gave testimony today, really giving a sense of the chaos that they faced, of the fact uh, that Shishimarin had been given an order to kill that civilian that he'd initially resisted, but really painting a picture of the sort of mayhem that these young soldiers were facing as they undertook an invasion that many of them didn't properly understand. So, so much uh, has come out of today's hearing, not just the emotion of the widow and uh, the emotion of Ukrainians as they watch this, the first war crimes trial to be held even as the war rages on and the alleged war crimes continue to be discovered. Uh, hearing from one of those direct victims, incredibly powerful, but also, again, a much better insight from the Russian point of view of what went on in those first few days of the war. So a very powerful hearing here today and one again that's playing out in the context of a war that continues to rage on, Alison. Yeah, what, a, what an incredible moment in court there. Melissa Bell in Kyiv, thanks so much. The Ukrainian counteroffensive around the northern city of Kharkiv has driven Russian troops back to within 10 miles or 16 kilometers of the Russian border. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is at the front line. Every inch of respite from Russian shelling here comes at grotesque cost. What once rained down on the second city of Kharkiv now lands here. Ukraine declared here, Ruskolozova liberated over two weeks ago, but it's never simple. These tiny villages, which before the war were places you wouldn't notice driving through, have now become the key battlegrounds to defend vital cities like Kharkiv. While the fight to protect Kharkiv still rages with every step fast and cautious because of mines, Russia's border is now just nine miles away. Did you ever think you'd be as close to Russia in nearly three months? But Russian troops are even closer. It's in the forest, across the field over this wall, that they say frequently at night Russian reconnaissance groups try and move in on the village. The next tiny hamlet is being fought over and this is where Kharkiv's defence cannot fail. The US's most effective gifts in some of Ukraine's youngest hands. Anton says he did not expect to be at war age 19. Ever been scared, I asked? Shelling here is a constant, even though everywhere seems to already have been hit. This is a homegrown defence. Volunteers, software engineers, economists, 
funded mostly by our guide, a farming millionaire. Russia's brief occupation never planned to leave anything of value here. Their daubed Zeds on a van full of TVs for looting. They see that we live better and they do not even think that something is wrong with them, not with us, you know. They think that uh, because America gives us everything for free and they uh, hate us for that and they rob us and they kill us. Men and women who have, in three months, learned courage only comes after knowing fear up close. Uh, the most scary moment was on the fifth day of uh, the war. Uh, I was at the uh, medical uh, center on, at one of the uh, posts in Kiev, and um, our commander gathered us, and uh, he told us that uh, Russian special forces are uh, going to come and uh, try to attack us from behind. Right. We were not trained to do this, uh, we were not armed to do this. Uh, that was basically the most scary moment for me. But and you survived. Uh, yes, we survived. Uh, everybody made okay, made it okay, and uh, I think that is that moment that uh, killed uh, fear in me. Here, they hold back an enemy that's slowly proving as inept as it is immoral, by placing incredible value on the smallest patches of their land. Nick Payton-Walsh, CNN, Ruska Lozova, Ukraine. Stay with CNN. The Market Open is next. Welcome back. I'm Alison Kosick in New York. Wall Street is making a lower start after its worst day since mid-2020. The Dow, S&P and Nasdaq all in the red again this morning. You see the Dow falling 360 points. Concerns over soaring inflation continue, excuse me, after retail giants Walmart and Target illustrated the consequences of it for the economy and their earnings reports this week. Shares of the two companies are under pressure again. Target dropped 25 percent yesterday, while Walmart lost 7 percent. You see red arrows for both of the companies at the moment. Joining me now, Christina Hooper. She's the chief global market strategist at Invesco. Uh, Christina, I know you're watching the market along with me. I'm curious to hear what you think was the catalyst that set the market off yesterday. Well, clearly there are growing inflationary concerns um, in terms of how it impacts earnings. And what we saw yesterday was just a reminder of how significant a role inflation can play uh, in, in impacting negatively on earnings. In addition, we have growing recessionary fears in the United States. But to me, the bigger picture is that with rates going up and an expectation of an aggressive Fed rate hike cycle, we're seeing a re-rating of risk assets. Um, We're seeing a re-rating really of of, uh, assets in general, Um, but it's really impacting stocks negatively. Everybody's asking when capitulation will happen. Are we getting close to it? I think we're closer to the bottom than we are to the top. But um, It is very, very hard to divine exactly where the bottom is until we're looking at it in the rearview mirror. Um, My opinion is that we've already priced in much of a recession, and I don't believe we're going to see a recession. I think we've already priced in a very aggressive rate hike cycle, and I don't believe the rate hike cycle is actually going to be that aggressive. So there is upside potential. Again, we just don't know when we're going to hit bottom until it's in the rearview mirror. 
So with you saying that you don't expect a recession, what about stagflation? Is that in your view? Well, certainly we are going to see a slowing in growth and we are going to see um, persistently high inflation, although I do believe it's going to be coming down slowly in the back half of 2022. Um, so to me, that does not create a stagflationary environment. Um, the 1970s was the quintessential stagflation environment, and that was when we had both high unemployment and high inflation. Um, I think we're unlikely to see high unemployment. We have so many job openings uh, in the US, in Europe, um, that what we're likely to see is a reduction in job openings, which should uh, tamp down wage growth, um, but create an environment in which we actually don't see much of an increase uh, in the unemployment rate, which is unlike Christina, you say you don't expect the Fed to be very aggressive with its rate yes. hikes. Um, is that because a lot of the work is really being done for them? I mean, you see the stock market tanking, so that uh, that wealth is going away. Um, you see the pressures on the consumer through earnings uh, like Target and Walmart. Th those are just the beginning. So uh, I guess talk us through why you think the Fed actually won't be as aggressive as maybe the market thinks. Well, because the Fed has already done some of the heavy lifting through FedSpeak, right? We've had a number of FOMC members come out and um, talk about how tough they're going to be this year. And that has already had an impact on financial conditions. Um, they've tightened in the U.S. They're really tightening globally. Um, one example is, is mortgage rates. Um, we've seen them go up about 200 basis points since the start of the year. The Fed hasn't done that much tightening. Um, this is in anticipation of tightening. So a lot of the heavy lifting has been done. Uh, and I think the Fed hopes to continue that by talking tough, but not necessarily having to carry as big a stick. Is there opportunity here? Oftentimes there is opportunity when you see the market fall so, so, so much. There is opportunity, but as I said, we don't know uh, exactly where the market bottom is. So this is an opportunity to dollar cost average in if one has a long time horizon. Um, at a certain point, this could be a generational investing opportunity um, if we see stocks sell off enough. But right now, this is certainly an investing opportunity, um, but I would advise dollar cost averaging in over coming months. And you have to have a strong stomach as well. Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco, thanks so much for your perspective. Thank you, Allison. Coming up, Impossible is getting its products on more shelves around the world, even as consumers seem less hungry for plant-based alternatives to meat. The CEO will be with me in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. Ukraine is one of the world's major grain producers. But Russian warships have blocked Ukrainian ports and cut off vital shipments of grain to some of the world's most vulnerable populations. On Wednesday, the U.S. announced an additional $215 million in emergency food aid to deal with the grain crisis. The U.N.'s top food official pleaded with Russia's leader to end the blockade. It is absolutely essential that we allow these ports to open because this is not just about Ukraine. This is about the poorest of the poor around the world who are on the brink of starvation as we speak. So I ask President Putin, if you have any heart at all, to please open these ports. 
At the same time, Russia is being accused of stealing farm equipment and tons of grain from Ukrainian farmers. CNN's Issa Suarez has more. Before the war, most of the food produced by Ukraine was exported through ports like this. Now these key trading docks have ground to a halt, blockaded by Russia, who, according to Ukraine's defense ministry, has also pilfered an estimated 400,000 tons of grain from Ukrainian farmers in Russian-occupied territory. Footage obtained by CNN from Militopol Zaporizhia shows trucks bearing the white Z symbol of the Russian military, transporting grain to Russian-held Crimea, an act that President Zelensky's administration is calling food terrorism. This is not just a strike at Ukraine. Without our agrarian export, dozens of countries in various regions of the world have found themselves on the brink of food deficit. Through satellite images, we were able to identify the Russian merchant ship Matros Poznik, one of three involved in the trade of stolen grain, seen here at the port in Sevastopol, Crimea, on April 29th. From there, the vessel carrying an estimated 27,000 tonnes of grain, according to maritime tracking site Fleetmon, travelled through the Bosphorus to Alexandria in Egypt, but was denied port. Then it went on to Beirut in Lebanon, but was also turned away. Finally, on May 8th, it reached Latakia, the principal port in Syria, according to shipping sources and Ukrainian officials. So in this situation, uh, I mean, the countries in the Middle East and in the, in the, in the Northern Africa, they will be, they don't have choice, okay? Uh, and they will uh, import uh, wheat from uh, anywhere uh, from where it's possible. So I think this is really state-supported uh, theft of Ukrainian assets, of Ukrainian grain. For Russia, stealing wheat and other grains during the war could prove lucrative. The price of wheat has skyrocketed so far this year, more than 60% or so, spiking after the war started on February 24th. And how much of a valuable commodity is it? Well, the price of wheat is now trading about $400 a tonne on the world market. As supplies run low and as prices continue to rise, there are fears the war is pushing the world to the brink of a food crisis, with the German foreign minister calling Russia's actions a deliberate war of grains. After seeing for himself the tons of grain, wheat and corn stockpile in Odessa, the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, vowed the EU, with support from the US, will help look for ways to export grain from Ukraine. Some of it is already being shipped from ports in neighbouring Romania, but still only a fraction of Ukraine's total production. More help is needed if Europe's breadbasket is to continue to feed the world. Isa Suarez, CNN. As grocery prices around the world soar and the war in Ukraine sparks fears of a food crisis, Impossible Foods is expanding. The maker of plant-based meat alternatives says it wants to make the global food system sustainable, and it just launched two products in the UK. It comes as some consumers seem to be pulling back from alternatives to meat. Peter McGuinness is CEO of Impossible Foods, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Allison. It's good to be here. 
So Wall Street has actually soured a bit on plant-based food stocks. I know that you're not publicly listed, but your competitors have gotten hit. So, you know, you throw in the competition space that's out there um, in the space. You throw in inflation and supply chain issues. How is your company faring through all this? Have you had to raise prices? And how are your sales for your products doing? It's a lot in those questions, Allison. Um, Look, I think Wall Street is not the consumer. We're the target audience, um, and and we're not public, as you said. Um, look, I think there's a competitive problem, not a category problem. I think the category is ripe to grow. Um, we're growing share year over year. We're growing at 65% year over year um, in terms of sales. So we're doing well, and we're very bullish on the category. There are some legacy players in the category Um that kind of bring the category down. They're not as productive on shelf. And I think as that category gets curated, um, the math will prevail, right? And what will be left are the best category. Um, so there are some unproductive SKUs on shelf that are impacting the category from a legacy perspective. And those will come off um, over time. And we're continuing to innovate and give people you know, options. And I think technology now has uh, enabled the food to be very close um, to the animal product. In fact, um, many of our products are preferred to the animal product. So you take better food, and then on top of that, it's better for you, and on top of that, it's better for the planet, you start to get um, a pretty robust value proposition. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of pricing, with our growth and our operating leverage and our fixed cost absorption and our redundancy in our supply chain, we haven't had to raise prices. So um, where animal products, particularly beef, has gone up 30, 40% uh, in the last year. Um, So we're quite competitive from a price perspective. You know, the global food system is under significant pressure to keep up uh, with the world's growing population. What is the main goal here uh, where impossible foods, for impossible foods in in this realm? I think it's to give people options, right? Better options. Um, you know, the food industry needs to be disrupted. <laughs> there are more bad options than good options. And so we want to make um, better options for people and the planet more available in more places. So innovation and distribution is a key part of our strategy. And that's why we're in the UK. Uh, we have a lot of friends and fans in the UK and um, they're rabid fans, and we hear from them a lot on our social feeds. And, uh, and in, by the way, in the UK and Europe, plant-based um, as a category is way ahead of the U.S. Um, so they're earlier adopters, and um, they're more um, right. open to plant-based right, right. options. So and we're excited launch- to be in the U.K. Yeah, and you're launching your chicken nuggets, your sausage patty in the U.K., but why not the Impossible Burger? We will launch the Impossible Burger in time. Um, There's some regulatory um, administrative things we need to do, which are just formalities, um, and we'll get there. Um, But we're going to start with the chicken and the pork and then the beef. We're in the UK for the long haul, um, and so that'll come over time. And I know you called it a formality, but there is some concern here in the U.S. A lot of you know, health experts have, ta- have spoken out about plant-based meat, how it's highly processed, it's high in sodium, and plus the questions about the ingredient that is in question to get, it, to get those burgers on the shelf in Europe, um, you know, the, the ingredient that gives the burger that meaty flavor and color. 
And so there's talk about, you know, that that some of these plant-based meats aren't much healthier than a meat-based burger. What do you say to all that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions out there. Um, in the end, end of the day, we have low to no trans fat. We have zero cholesterol. And it's 100% plant-based. So that is better for you. That is better for the planet. Um, but all products in the plant-based meat category are not created equal. Some do have high sodium. Some are more processed than others. So to just say that plant-based um, meat alternatives in general are not good for you, mm -hmm. I don't think is fair. I think it's a bit lazy. Um, <laughs> and so and in terms of processed, that's an interesting word, right? I think the definition of process is important, right? I, I view process as artificial. We're not making Twinkies. <laughs> um, we're, we're making um, meat from plants. So if you want to call that processed, um, then I guess we're processed. But we feel good about our manufacturing processes. We feel good about our mm -hmm. ingredient list. We're always looking to improve them with technology. Mm -hmm. um, but we feel great about our products um, and taste, flavor, nutrition profile, and um, how they mm -hmm. help the planet, particularly climate. Peter, quickly, I want to ask you about this. I know that an IPO sure. for, incre for Impossible Foods uh, was expected to happen before April. It hasn't happened yet. Why not? And what is the timing of an IPO if that's even going to happen? Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about the April date, um, you know, six weeks into being CEO. Um, look, I think everything's on the table. Um, we're in a fortunate position to have a strong balance sheet um, and our cash position strong. So, so we don't have to go public or need to go public. And so we'll go public when we're ready to go public. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, it's on the table and the timing is really up to us. Okay, Peter McGinnis, CEO of Impossible Foods. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for having me. You got it. Coming up, another tough day on Wall Street. Stocks are down right now after a, after a heavy sell-off yesterday. More market analysis coming up next. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are trading lower again after a major sell-off on Wednesday, the worst on Wall Street in about two years. The Dow is falling right now, 445 points. Um, it's down by almost 15 percent this year. Paula Monica joins us now, you know, and, and you look at even the Nasdaq, it's even worse. It's down th about 30 percent for the year. Th these numbers are really just shocking. And what's setting this off is, is those earnings from yesterday. We're getting, you know, a, a bird's eye view of how these supply shocks are really hurting and impacting consumers. Yeah, definitely, Allison. We had really poor results and guidance from Walmart and Target in the past few days that have spooked investors. Clearly, these companies are hurting because of those supply chain constraints that you mentioned. And I think we're also seeing that consumers are starting to really just hunker down again and they're spending on essentials, but maybe not on big ticket items that would really help these uh, retailers. Kohl's, another uh, retailer, big department store chain that's been struggling. Their numbers were not very good this morning. But what's troubling too, Allison, is this sell-off is starting to spread. We're seeing earnings weakness in other sectors as well. Cisco, Dow Component, big tech giant, their stock is getting crushed today because of their guidance, and that is leading to a broader tech market sell-off. 
So this is kind of the work that the Fed wants to kind of see done. It wants to see the consumer pulling back. Um, it wants to see sort of this shell-shocked uh, situation, I'm thinking. So does this mean that we can expect uh, fewer, more, fewer aggressive rate hikes in the future? Uh, I'm not so sure yet. I mean, I think you're right that the Fed wants to see the economy cool a little bit, but maybe not so drastically that you're going to start hearing more talk about a hard landing for the economy as opposed to a soft landing. The Fed definitely wants inflation to cool because it can't go at this pace indefinitely without hurting the economy for the longer term. So the Fed is really trying to rein in those inflation pressures. The problem, of course, Allison, is if you aggressively raise rates too many times, that could hurt corporate profits, that could hurt consumer spending. And I don't think the Fed wants a long bear market and another great recession. Yes, recessions are inevitable and necessary, but hopefully we get a shallow downturn and not something really dramatic that spooks investors and consumers for a long period of time. How far are we from the bottom very quickly? I don't think we're there yet. I think we've we have some downside still because earnings are coming in and the guidance is mm. uh, pretty weak and investors look ahead. And if they're looking ahead to weak results for the rest of the year in 2023, stocks could tumble a little bit more. All right. Paula Monica, thanks so much. And for those of us old enough to remember George W. Bush making slip ups in speeches as president last night, we had a reminder of the old days. Bush, who sent U.S. forces into Iraq to overthrow Saddam Hussein, seemed to get a little confused while condemning Russia for invading Ukraine. Listen to this. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. (laughs) Iraq, anyway, uh, <laughs> 75. Uh. Okay, but a reminder as well, even President Biden at his age gets uh, slipped up there as well. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Eleni Gyokos is next. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.